Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The better informed tribes and businesses are, the better able they are to respond to the economic needs of citizens and to influence policy. The trouble is, information can be hard to come by. Fortunately, some tribes and some organizations with research capability are working to boost their access to information to help outcomes in economic development, public health, and other areas. We'll talk about getting access to accurate and timely data coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. For thousands of years, indigenous peoples along the western coast of North America built stone weirs on beaches to trap fish on the incoming tide. It was an efficient way to catch them, but also ecologically sound. In southeast Alaska, sonar in 2010 spotted what looked like a structure underwater near Prince of Wales Island, one that a Canadian underwater archaeologist suspected was a weir. This year, a team of scientists got a closer look with an underwater drone and confirmed Dr. Kelly Monteleone's theory that the arc of stacked boulders was indeed a weir. Monteleone teaches anthropology and archaeology at the University of Calgary and presented her findings in Juneau recently at the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, one of the partners in the project. She says the weir is at least 11,000 years old and perhaps one of the oldest in the world. This means that they had those patterns 11,000 years ago, which means they were here so much longer. Monteleone says the presence of the weir suggests the land was in use 5,000 years earlier. The fact that it was underwater also points to a drastic change in sea level in a very short period of time. Does that mean that with this level of sea level rise, change became the new normal? That's a question scientists want to know more about. They say knowledge about how people adapted to drastic changes in sea levels 11,000 years ago could be helpful to Alaska Native people today as they cope with climate change. The project has adopted what a Mi'kmaq elder has described as two-eye seeing. The idea is with two-eyed seeing is that you're able to look at both an indigenous lens or viewpoint and a Western scientific viewpoint at the same time. Monteleone says her research incorporates oral histories and traditional knowledge to get a more holistic look at the patterns of land use. The project is also part of Sea Alaska Heritage Institute's ongoing efforts to document the presence of indigenous peoples in southeast Alaska to strengthen their historic claim to the land. The Cherokee Nation is opening a new domestic violence shelter in Stillwell, Oklahoma, Tuesday to help families and children. The 11,000-square-foot shelter is set up to house up to six families and has an indoor child playroom. There will also be staff on site. Cherokee officials and members of the tribe's task force to protect women and families are unveiling new initiatives to address domestic violence on the Cherokee Nation Reservation in 2023. One of the initiatives includes a statewide intimate partner and family training summit scheduled for April. Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. says protecting families and children from violence is a priority, and the implementation of new initiatives is intended to make sweeping and lasting changes to keep the reservation safe. 
A Navajo veteran has been awarded a Purple Heart more than 50 years after being wounded in battle. Leroy Cody recently received the Purple Heart Medal during a ceremony in Loop, Arizona. 56 years ago, he was wounded in battle in the Vietnam War. During the ceremony, the Military Order of the Purple Heart Department of Arizona also officially designated Loop as a Purple Heart community. The community has three other Purple Heart recipients. Loop now joins a national network of Purple Heart roads, bridges, highways, and monuments, honoring service members who have received the Purple Heart. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A historical master trauma class taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is March 24, 2023 at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company a small batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetzon Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com slash news. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Information is key for governments and businesses to understand what people need from them. But most tribes and tribal businesses lack information, especially how it relates specifically to Native Americans. Some tribes, though, are working to improve their access to accurate and timely information. Among other things, it could help increase profits, influence policies from state and federal governments, and improve grant and funding opportunities. The Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis recently hosted an economic summit that focused on data collection as a way to promote economic prosperity in Indian country. Today on our show, we'll talk with experts about the importance of good information and how to bridge data gaps in Native communities. Of course, we welcome listeners to the conversation. Is your tribe working to improve how information is collected in your community? What sort of information could benefit your tribe? Join us by calling one 800 996-2848. You can also post on our social media. Our Twitter handle is 180099Native. And folks, today we brought in three indigenous economists on our show and a pretty select group of guests we have. And I'd like to introduce our first guest. He is joining us from Helena, Montana, Casey Lozar. He is the uh, Vice President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and the Director for the Center for Indian Country Development, Center for Indian Country Development. And he is an enrolled member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes and a descendant of the Fort Peck, Assiniboine, and Sioux Tribes. Casey, you've been here on the show before. Welcome back to NEC. Wonderful. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having us. 
You bet. Well, well, Casey, please start by helping us frame today's conversation. What exactly is the role of data collection in the field of economics? Well, Sean, um, I think the role of uh, data collection in economics uh, is particularly important and, and important when it's applied to, to sort of Indian country. As you know, Indian country is, is complex. We have, uh, you know, 574 tribes and uh, the, uh, millions of tribal members and those that are affiliated with tribes. So the economic experiences are really different by individual tribes and, and, and indige indigenous communities. Yet there are similarities uh, across tribes sort of nationally, and there are these regional experiences that are, are common, things like government structures and uh, process of self-determination and educational attainment and natural resources, et cetera. And data associated with individual tribal communities and uh, data harmonized across Indian country is just critical in, in telling the an accurate economic narrative of the real-time experiences of our native nations and indigenous communities. And thinking about the economic narrative, data really serves as the words, the economic story. So without high quality data, these narratives will not reflect, you know, the, the, the lived experiences of our people and they can't be used uh, to uh, inform in meaningful ways decisions by our tribal leaders, by, by government leaders, by business and, 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 and tribal people. So collecting of data uh, across different geographic units and ensuring data quality is just absolutely critical as sort of the engine of the field of, of economics and, and uh, understanding our economic conditions and our economic opportunities in Indian country. Casey, you describe data as words that tell a story, an economic story, and, and what type of data is especially valuable in Native communities? Well, all data is, is valuable in, in Native communities. I mean, I think there's, you know, when you think about growing and building our, our tribal economies, having a good understanding of uh, both the public sector, so understanding the, the contributions of the, the Native entity owned or the tribally owned enterprises um, and how they're contributing to our communities, both from a revenue perspective as well as a, a labor market a jobs perspective, uh, you know, understanding um, you know, and having real-time data on uh, the experience of, of individuals as it relates to things like home ownership or uh, uh, educational attainment or, or skills, uh, skill developments and areas of expertise are all really important in forming uh, ways in which tribes can expand and diversify their, their tribal economies. So I, I think it's, it's, it's just greatly uh, important uh, to arm, you know, decision makers either in the business world or in the government world or even our tribal families with um, the type of data that will allow them to make those important decisions that will either take care of the economic well-being of our tribal communities or the well-being of our, 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 our families. Now, a big part of today's show is, is to focus on, on some of these data gaps that exist in Indian country. And where, where are they and, and what type of information is most needed in Indian country that we don't currently have? Yeah, certainly there are data gaps. 
in, in Indian country. Um, and um, you can kind of see that, uh, you know, pretty consistently when you look at different data sets or charts or graphs and, uh, and native communities or native people are just left off where we're often just invisible in those data sets. Um, and, um, and there's, it, this really plays out in a few different areas that I think are particularly important data gaps to close. And that is just understanding, um, you know, individual, uh, data. So, you know, census, um, and, and other, uh, census tools collect data on self-certified -certif Native Americans or Amer American Indians, Alaska Natives, um, and there's very little data on sort of the non-self-certified or the citizenship data of those mm -hmm. that are uh, members of our, our tribal nations. The other that really jumps out from the economic side is um, while there's some um, some data associated with Native-owned businesses, uh, Native owned by citizens, there's, there isn't really a lot of information related to um, tribally owned businesses. And these businesses play just an outsized role in uh, right. tribal economies, supporting tribal governments. It, right. You know, there's, there's, a, there's other, you know, like wealth and sort of asset holdings. There's a, some primary surveys that capture that at, uh, across the United States and uh, American and Alaska natives are, are, are left out of that information as well as just understanding like the credit and the debt conditions of, of native businesses and what that means for uh, having that data, what that might mean for um, addressing sort of the, the limited access to affordable credit and capital that, as you know, Sean, is important for um, supporting and growing uh, both the public and the private economies in, in, in Indian country. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Casey, you, you really underscore this, uh, this need for more data, especially as it applies to economics and how, uh, <clears throat> in many cases, Native American people, Native American communities are left out of some of these data sets. And that begs the question, why is that? Is it perhaps because we represent such a small population percentage-wise compared to the rest of the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think Native Native Americans are uh, represent about two percent of the population, and and obviously that is that's a small share of the total population in the United States. And so, you know, some survey uh, uh, developers, um, you know, don't take the care needed to be able to be inclusive of of tribal people, and that means um, you know having to do to go a bit uh, above and beyond in trying to. Uh, reach Native communities where they're at and making sure that they're doing their best to oversample what we are, a small population uh, in the United States. And, um, you know, one of the things, one of the major impacts of, of, of having low sample sizes is that we often are either completely left out of data sets or um, the sample size is so low that we can't do precise calculations. Um, for American Indian Alaska Natives, and we, we have to do these uh, use these methods where we're you know pairing five years of data just so we can get to a level of statistical significance or meaningful analysis. And as we all learned, you know, for example, from the pandemic, um, having to look at five years of data versus the last month of data, that really shifts and changes uh, how policymakers and tribal leaders might want to think about interventions to support tribal communities. So, you know, having the, the low numbers and just having low data quality where there may be data that exists 
um, makes it quite challenging to really understand uh, where we're at as Native people. It, it sounds like it does. And <clears throat> again, these challenges with regards to just such a small sample size. You mentioned 2% of the U.S. population is Native American. And, and Casey, I would imagine not only is it difficult to get this data challenging, but also when you're dealing with small sizes like that, uh, are the chances for errors higher as well with regarding to capturing the right data? Uh, they can be. Uh, they, they certainly can be. I, I think that's when you have a, a, a low N, N uh, low sample size, um, it's you, like I said, you have to sort of compare and compile years of data to be able to try to have precise uh, this, these precise calculations. And without it, you may not be telling the full story of uh, the experiences of tribal people. And you know, one of the things that we've done um, at the Center for Indian Country Development is for the, the data sets where we know that um, there exists. Uh, data for American Indian and Alaska Natives. We've uh, pulled pulled a lot of the data into tools to make this data more accessible to the Indian country and the policymakers. You know, a couple of things that I, examples um, that I can think of uh, more recently at the center is um, we developed a labor market dashboard uh, that is specific to American Indian and Alaska Natives, and we you know in the dashboard you can look at unemployment rates and labor participation rates and those types of things. Okay. But we've also had to... Casey, do me a favor. Do, do me a favor. Hold that thought, because we are going to have to take a break, but I would love to learn more uh, about this uh, labor market dashboard and some of these other data collection tools uh, developed by the Center for Indian Country Development. We're speaking now with Casey Lozar. He is Vice President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and Director for the Center for Indian Country Development. We'll be right back. The Inuit group Pilksilk is bringing their own traditions to holiday music, and First Nations bassist Molly Obamsawin brings an Abenaki richness to her free jazz debut album. We're adding them to our Native playlist on the next Native America Calling. กึกตาเป็นมาจาวะจึกซอมิกิจึกปาซอมมุนกิตาอมอุกิเฮมจึกเนอจึกกะกามิชกะมอตวะกะกะกุยมุนกิตาจึวิตกะจินกุกิเป
there's certainly some public uh, uh, data that's available uh, associated with American Indian and Alaska Natives, but oftentimes it's really hard to access, uh, to compile, to harmonize, and, and to do it in ways that are uh, accessible to, to decision makers. And the, the center has developed a number of different data tools. The, the, the labor market dashboard that you referred to is a, a dashboard we pulled together recently um, that takes raw data from the monthly employment survey uh, for uh, and, and pulls out American Indian Alaska Native um, uh, indicators uh, data uh, on things like uh, unemployment rates and labor participation rates. And we do it in a way where you can get on the dashboard and you can kind of compare metro areas and non-metro areas uh, for American Indian Alaska Natives, compare that to the rest of the nation to get a sense of uh, what the labor market looks like for Native people. And that would be quite a, a difficult challenge without the, you know, the utility uh, and the usefulness of a dashboard. Um, the center also has developed a number of other uh, data tools. We've got reservation profiles uh, for the reservations in our um, in the Minneapolis Fed uh, region of the country, where you can look at all a whole host of different uh, data associated associated with those communities. But you can do it on the, the click of a button, uh, so you can pull up you know my my reservation Flathead and and look at some of the the data results for our community. Incredibly helpful as you can imagine, for tribal leaders and grant writers and, and those that are looking to start, start businesses. And we've, we've also paired out a couple additional tools uh, recently. We've, um, we've developed a Native American funding and finance atlas where you can look at federal programs across Indian country and zero in on a map and pick a number of different uh, uh, programs to see, are they accessible? Are they working in our, in our tribal communities? So these tools are, you know, it's, it's the, the public good that the Center for Indian Country's development is bringing to Indian Country, making hard-to-access data more useful and, and uh, convenient and accessible for, our, uh, for decision-makers all around the country. Casey, thank you for sharing all these different tools available through the Center for Indian Country Development. Let's go to the phones now. We have Justin. He's listening on KMHA in Newtown, North Dakota. Justin, you're on the air. Hey, good day to Sean. Uh, thanks for having me. This is in regards to the ever-changing tribal governments that we have all across Native America country and Alaska Natives. What kind of benefits or what kind of impacts can the new tribal governments experience through information data. All right, Justin, appreciate that call there. Justin's question again, how is data impacted by new tribal governments or new tribal administrations? And let's go ahead and bring in our third guest, who I, or excuse me, our second guest. I think she would be uniquely qualified to answer this question. Joining us now from Window Rock, Arizona is Alicia Murphy. She is the Navajo Nation Division of Economic Development Economist. She is Denise. Alicia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Alicia, your job sounds really interesting. And before we get to, to Justin's question, I, I just want to ask you right off the bat, is it common for tribes to have an economist such as yourself on the payroll? Uh, for, for my tribe specifically, I'm the first economist to be within this division of economic development. And I'm everywhere I go and people I meet, I am eager to meet other Native and Indigenous economists that uh, seem 
we're all working towards the same goal where we're collecting data that would truly reflect the 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 characteristics and the um, of our communities that are so unique. So um, I haven't met very many, and uh, but I am honored to be to have been selected to to work for my tribe and to uh, be on this this journey to to gather more information about our tribe. So tribal economists uh, sounds like a, a select group of, of professionals, certainly. And Alicia, could you respond to our, our caller Justin's question? He wanted to know how data information can be impacted when new tribal administrations come in or leave. I know you have some big changes coming up soon there in Window Rock. Oh, yeah, we have a new administration coming on board uh, coming in a couple of weeks in January. So honestly, my first thought when I heard that question was my work is not going to be impacted by this change in tribal leadership because the data is what tells the story of our communities. And what uh, Casey said before is that it's, it's really a different way we're going to learn about our community's uniqueness and use that information to influence policy. So that was my first thought. And um, being that I am new in this division and new within our tribal government, I don't see that changing. My work is going to stay the same. Uh, I, I, however, am surprised by <laughs> a lot of things in this job and every every step of the way it's been a learning experience for me but it, but my goal is the same is that the information that we gather from our communities from rural Arizona to rural New Mexico or wherever the parts of our communities are are housed that that information is important the integrity should be kept at the highest priority the information that we gather and um, so therefore that's that was my first reaction to the question Mm -hmm. Well, Alicia, earlier we heard Casey talk about just the importance of having good data and, and some of these challenges with, with getting data from, from small data sets that um, <clears throat> are, are so indicative uh, of so many parts of Indian country. We just have such small numbers with regard to our population densities and, and such. And I know you conducted a survey earlier this year, and, and I'd like to learn more about that because here you are with your boots on the ground. You're actually going out there and getting this data. And what goes into that, creating a survey and executing it like you did? Well, it, it initially started with uh, an interesting question from our former director at the time, Mr. J.T. Willie. He wanted to just we were brainstorming in the room at one point and we wanted to just know, learn and, and hear from our communities. What are they spending money on? Uh, as you might know, there's CARES Act and the ARPA funds had allotted us some, some money to give directly to our, our enrolled citizens of our Navajo tribe. So each, each enrolled member was allotted some uh, money for uh, COVID relief. And so, it's an influx of money to help our communities, but we wanted to know what they what they were spending their money on. So we just created this survey. It was a strictly online because we wanted to keep our citizens safe and keep our employees safe. So it was a strictly online survey. We did receive 5,316 responses, and we're still looking at that data. To and the main thing was we in each community we have different 
110 chapter communities, but not every community has access to a store. So we know that a lot of the money will leave our tribal communities, it's economic leakage. So we even asked questions about their anticipated uh, spending off reservation versus on the reservation. So um, we learned that uh, personal care and services are, are top of the list in spending for these consumers, which is anything from <laughs> uh, getting your nails done, getting your hair done, uh, you know, personal care and services. Um, and then the education was not very high on the list, but it is on there, um, not not far down the list. I think it was five or six down the list on, on categories for spending. And and really the the goal was to inform these policymakers that here 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 is an opportunity that our tribes are getting with maybe ARPA funds or or unprecedented amounts of money for economic development to address infrastructure needs to address public safety needs, but also here's the consumer's needs too. And that was just another component we could look at. And it was a very awesome turnout, uh, a lot of support from our enterprises, from our communities, and um, that final report is, is forthcoming. It's very hard to, to sit down and focus on one thing. There's a lot going on in, in this division, and uh, I look forward to publish, publishing that report. Sounds really exciting. And Alicia, you mentioned over 5,000 responses to this online survey. Now, I know the Navajo Nation has a very large population. You folks go back and forth between uh, the, the largest tribe between you and uh, the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. Were you satisfied with 5,000-plus uh, responses, or were you looking for even more than that? Do you think that's an accurate, a, a good number to, to get meaningful data with? Given, given the online uh, limitations, uh, not every person had access to has access to internet or broadband on on tribal communities. So, uh, our, our initially our goal was a hundred, and then it it was fat, uh, within a day we, we we surpassed that, and then it was a thousand, and we surpassed that. And uh, with the great work from our team and the help from our enterprises getting the information out and a newspaper and radio, uh, it, it really surprised me and I'm, I'm delightfully surprised that we did get the response that we did. Um, so with a 400,000 uh, plus enrollment number um, and not everybody has access to internet, uh, 5,000 and 5,300 is a really good uh, turnout. And even in speaking with other, my professors, my mentors, uh, they're, they're interested in this data as well and, and, and surprised that the turnout was that, was that great as also. So enrollment, uh, close to half a million. And, and if you get the right 5,000 respondents, I mean, you can really narrow in and get really good quality data. And I'm interested, Alicia, were there any incentives offered to respondents or anything like that to encourage people to complete the survey online? Yeah, yeah, we did offer incentives to uh, survey participants, and, and that is why I keep mentioning our Navajo enterprises. We provided uh, um, in-kind donations from their establishments to incentivize our, our survey takers, um, and it was it was fun. Uh, we had. I think we had over 40, over 50 incentives donated by our Navajo Nation enterprises and Navajo businesses, and um, that just goes to show that gathering information 
and 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 uh, initiating an effort like this and our enterprises know how important this would be to our communities because that's who's going to feel the impact is is this information in the future not immediately but in the future will impact those communities that need these that that have demands and and they have needs and our nation is working to meet those needs um but if this information will will is a good step to to get in there Alicia, you mentioned key findings of this survey, uh, access to stores, not all of the, the 110 chapters there on the Navajo Nation uh, have access to stores, personal care and services, education was also on the list a little bit further down. So uh, moving ahead, do you see more surveys like this or maybe uh, surveys that will kind of hone in on some of these findings and explore them in a little bit more detail in the future? Definitely. I. I really want to look at the we have the name the Navajo Nation is, is is separated into five agencies and that's typically how funds are generally allocated. I know there's uh our council has uh, their legislative designations for services and how they represent the communities. But within the five agencies we can figure out um which which services and what, what the needs are are more significant in this area versus over here on this side. So yeah, there is room to improve this and to, to really analyze this data by by agency. But also I feel like it's important to look at the uh, the data by uh, by age group. We have uh, an interesting behavior by the age groups. And so um, there's tons of things I can do with this data and I just wish uh, we could build this department that I'm in. I'm a team of one, and and I and however I know that this work is 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 for the long term. So I know we'll grow in our capacity to analyze data. So I'm excited by to, to continue to look at this to this uh, survey results, and of course conduct more surveys. But really, it's trying to meet the needs of our communities. A team of one, as you put it, uh, really interesting, and Alicia. Are there also cultural elements that that you need to be mindful of with surveys like this? Because I'm thinking as a Diné person, you must offer some special skills and insights that you can apply to data collection there within the Navajo Nation. Yeah, that was that's a really good question. And definitely, yes, cultural um, values, customs, and just the, 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 the basic definition of economic development is significantly different than somebody who's non-native or non-indigenous. Um, I that was my very first question out of out of school, out of grad school was what is the real definition of economic development for Navajo Nation? And we compare it to the innate, the intrinsic or the inherent need and desire, just how we were all raised in, in the Navajo community to try to build your communities together as opposed to individualistic successes. Um, so I've always wanted to come back to my communities to try to, to my Navajo community to try to help my help in some way. And it's not my success, it's the success of where I've come from, it's success of my extended families. Um, so even that definition has carried on through what I try to do today in my work. And when we go through a census survey or American community survey, it's always how does how does my grandma read that? Does 
when we look at business ownership and we have uh, artisans who try to establish a business, it's a different language to try to measure success for that one business owner who's Navajo who only does rug weaving and may not speak um, English fluently. So defining and, and coming up with a language that she, that she can understand or he can understand um, is very important to how we are going to collect data and analyze data. Um, initiating make, uh, protocols and procedures for data sovereignty and, and ensuring that that information is translated. I don't know. I don't like that word, but it's 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 mm -hmm. we're able to report on that information um, in a very respectful way and 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 ensuring that that identity of being Navajo is kept in that information. So um, that's what keeps it separate from census from BLS BEA. Um, our Navajo Nation data is going to be, uh, or any tribal community's data is going to be important. That was Alicia Murphy. She's an Office of One with the Navajo Nation Division of Economic Development. Uh, we have one more guest coming up after this next break. Support by Department of Homeland Security. Brandy Bynum, Program Manager, DHS Blue Campaign, has tips to combat human trafficking. On January 11th, wear blue, the international color of human trafficking awareness. To help raise knowledge of this crime, take a photo and then post it on social media using the hashtag WearBlueDay and empower your community to access Blue Campaign's educational resources to stay informed. Learn more about preventing human trafficking at dhs.gov slash blue campaign. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There is still time to join this discussion about collecting information to improve economic development in Native communities. Our phone lines are open, so give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Really would like to get some more listener feedback about our show today. Again, we are talking about information and data collection as it applies to Native communities. Our third guest is joining us now from Aotearoa, New Zealand via Zoom. We have Matt Roscrooge. He is a professor of economics and associate dean Maori at Massey University in New Zealand. He is Tiatiawa and Natitama. Matt, welcome to Native America Calling. Yeah, morning, Sean. Good morning here. Um, privileged to be here, especially with such amazing panelists. You bet, Matt. We appreciate you getting up early to join the show. I know it's a, a few hours earlier there uh, in New Zealand. And Matt, listening to both Casey and Alicia talk about data collection and economics from a Native American context, do any of these insights echo your work in New Zealand? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, a lot of the issues that were raised um, by the other two panelists are exactly the same things that we've um, worked through or in the middle of working through here. Uh, pool sample sizes, um, challenges around data governance, all sorts of areas where um, we, we're making a lot of progress, but there's still work to be done. Um, yeah. Well, tell us more uh, about the economies uh, with different Maori communities there in New Zealand. What, what are some of the challenges they're facing and uh, what are some success stories that uh, you can share? Yeah, so sticking on the economy side, um, Māori economies, um, we're still in the very early stages, I think, of um, defining what the Māori economy is for us. Um, the current estimate has it at around 80 billion, um, but that's really focusing on the asset base. 
that's held by um, Māori businesses um, and trusts and that sort of thing. Um, a little bit of a problem there. And, um, our big focus is on the people and people are almost entirely missing from that definition. Uh, so we're looking at moving, um, I think, towards better understanding our um, Māori population and how that fits into our definition of our economy and also um, Māori values. So um, at the moment, the measures that we're using uh, are focused a lot around um, Western values of what an economy should look like, what should be um, measured and valued in that. And we're very interested now in talking to um, Māori communities and understanding, well, what does, uh, what does value, what does the economy look like for them and what do they think we should be measuring? Um, so that's one of the, I guess, one of the big tasks at the moment is moving beyond just an asset-based focus on an economy and starting to move back towards our people and culture and our definition. Um, terms of successes, we're seeing um, an economy that's, uh, we're growing at the asset base that we know well at about 10%. Um, uh, it's taken a real hit with um, COVID. Uh, Māori businesses um, were quite exposed to both tourism and um, the export sector. And we also know that our people tend to be um, employed into disproportionately into um, vulnerable work. And so we had a lot of layoffs um, among Māori. Uh, so our um, unemployment rate always sits about twice the non-Māori unemployment rate. So I think we're at about 4% at the moment compared to 2% for non-Māori. So incredibly low unemployment here at the moment, but still um, that gap. Mm. Um, so yeah, a bit of a hit there. What is going very well again is building that asset base um, diversification. So we were um, initially really heavily um, involved just in the primary uh, industries and in tourism. We're starting to see that 40% um, of our people now are employed in health or education. Um, huge um, growth in the amount of Māori involved in the media sector. Um, really, um, really quite a vibrant um, media sector here for the Indigenous. Um, and so, yeah, that, that diversification has been a real strength. Um, I think we're seeing a growth in our um, in non-Māori and the New Zealand economy generally understanding the value of a Māori economy. So um, some of the things that we're talking about are um, the ability for us to bring a different perspective to um, to the economy, a different way of um, looking at long-term sustainability uh, and um, and making sure that there's um, it's going to be something left for future generations. Uh, so we've got some Māori businesses now that are coming out with 500-year um, business plans uh, for what oh, wow. they want their, um, their <laughs> Benua to look like. It's amazing. Boy, um, talk about so seven generations. That's really going out. Wow, five hundred years in the future. Yeah. That's really, yeah. really inspiring. And and Matt, you mentioned uh, these growing um, movements towards work and and health, education, media services as well. And earlier we heard that Native Americans represent about two percent of the U.S. population. And I'm curious to know uh, what percentage of the total uh, population of New Zealand is Maori. Yeah, around about 16%. Um, so it's, it's growing rapidly. We're a um, very young um, uh, Indigenous group, um, nation. <laughs> and um, and yeah, around about 16%, so quite strong. We also have a really um, good treaty framework that we're working towards. Uh, so we've got the Treaty of Waitangi, which sets out the relationship between the Crown and um, Māori. And that's been um, 
uh, it was largely ignored for a very long time, but is really coming into um, uh, really coming into its own now. And we're starting to see um, the state uh, put a huge amount of effort into meeting its um, treaty obligations. Uh, otherwise, they get taken to court. Um, so it's been a um, yeah, that's been an increasingly successful vehicle to change the way that um, our economy is governed and administered, or with the relationship with it to the state. Um, increasingly, though, I think um, we're looking at a um, Māori nation and Māori businesses that are able to um, do things. That, I mean, the, the treaty was a, a way of starting to address some of the um, the, um, the disenfranchisement from our um, our land and our, our resource asset base. Uh, but um, we're now, I think, moving towards a stage where we're also um, looking beyond that to, um, yeah, what do we look like as a, a more independent group, uh, more self-reliant? Um, we talk a little bit about the, um, uh, and it's, I mean, when you look at the amount of land that was seized, I mean, especially if you look at the US context, right? The, um, the, uh, the amount of wealth that was taken away from um, our people and the uh, impact that's had in both in trauma, but also the intergenerational transfer of wealth is um, colossal. So we've got um, farmers' businesses um, on the land that my great-great-grandfather owned and was seized from them. And if that um, asset base had stayed within the family, what impact would that have had um, on some of my cousins and others that have um, sort of still struggling to build an asset base and then transfer that down through the generations. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. Just fascinating. Uh, Matt, earlier we heard Alicia talk about her survey there on, on the Navajo Nation and some of the challenges that went into that and, and some of the unique ways in which she and 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 some of the other folks were able to to glean some of this data. And I'm interested in in terms of, of data collection there amongst Maori communities, uh, online surveys, face-to-face. Uh, -face. How, how do you go out and actually engage with folks and, and get this kind of information? Yeah, Alicia's right on the cutting edge there um, of um, where we're starting to think about our um, data collection. So one of the... Um, First things that we're starting to work through is um, what data we're collecting and why. Um, so we've got a lot of administrative data that we um, is just hoovered up by the state um, that has Māori identifiers, and that's 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 useful. That's great. Um, but there's also a lot of um, uh, social data, um, survey data that we're starting to collect, um, and that becomes interesting when we're trying to make sure. Um, uh, the things that we're asking is the data that we're collecting appropriate and useful for Māori. Does it actually reflect our values, or is it just a another version of um, data that's already been collected from a, um, a say a Western perspective? So one of the good examples of that for us was um, we've uh, the um, Statistics New Zealand has a survey called um, Tukupinga, which is the general social survey that you'll be um, uh, you guys have one in the states. But it's the general social survey reimagined by Māori. And so what, what questions do we want to ask? Um, what's meaningful in terms of our social interactions, in terms of our ability to connect back to our tribes and to our um, treasures, our taonga? Um, and so we're asking sort of both the governance of that survey and the questions that are asked are things that are of specific interest to Māori, not just um, things that are of interest to a, um, to a state that wants to provide good um, social services. So there's that there's that governance aspect. Um, data sovereignty was touched on before. That's a huge issue here. Um, I mean, it terrifies me how much 
um, data is being given away <laughs> online at the moment by our people. And yet, um, and yet we get, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of um, complicated issues around um, how do we make sure that data about us is governed by us or that is it's used appropriately or it's used in a way that isn't um, going to be um, uh, deficit focused or harmful. Um, so working through data sovereignty, definitional issues. Um, we've spent a lot of try and time trying to define, for instance, what is a Māori business? Is it a business that's 51% Māori owned? Is it a business that has any Māori owner? Uh, is it a business that um, demonstrates Māori values and the way that it operates? Um, but we've got some businesses that are owned by who knows who, they're all shareholders, but the workers in them demonstrate um, Māori culture in their day-to-day -day, um, operation of the business. So in the forestry sector, you might see um, prayer, karakia done before um, and at the start and the end of the day. And um, Māori uh, protocol and practice is deeply embedded in that workplace. Is that a Māori business, even though it potentially has no or an unknown amount of Māori ownership? Um, so definitional, definitional issues have been, okay. um, is another thing that we're really working through at the moment. Okay. Matt, you, you talk about data sovereignty, and I know Alicia focuses on, on data sovereignty as well. And I, I want to bring her back into the conversation, if I can. Alicia, data sovereignty, and, and as Native people, you know, we hear that term sovereignty used in so many different contexts. And could you provide a little bit more insight? What exactly do economists mean, Native economists such as yourself, when you use that term data sovereignty? Uh, that's a good question. For me, it means the, the practice of collecting our own data and, and what Matt was talking about too is very much going to involve how that uh, information is processed. So having a clear definition of what you're collecting and why you're collecting it and, and what it actually means. So for instance, um, uh, success. What is a successful Native business? And a lot of uh, people would initially go to revenue if your business is profitable. But like I mentioned before, for at least how I was raised and how I see success is, the, is, is, is services and, and, and services that are provided where community is all benefiting from it together, the uplifting of a community. And it's not just an individualistic thing. So that is a definition that comes directly from how I was raised on the Navajo community, from my my parents, from it's not in an individualistic perspective, uh, to indigenous way of, of, of knowing indigenous studies, indigenous, uh, we have mm -hmm. we have words that are not individualistic, we have words that com that uh, incorporate community. So data sovereignty is, is doing that and ensuring that those definitions for community are involved and in, it's not just individualistic. Um, that's in, in how I approach data sovereignty in my work now is we're going to be starting defining business success by going to our communities directly uh, this coming year. Is, is they, they need to tell me what I should measure and what information I should collect and uh, that, that is the practice of, of data sovereignty. Okay. Alicia, thank you so much for those additional insights. I want to go back to Matt now. And 
Matt, so uh, this is serious stuff here. This information, data, um, there in New Zealand, uh, here in the States, and it's obviously imperative that as Native people, uh, we protect that data in regards to its sovereignty. And how do you do that, Matt? How do you protect some of this data that uh, is, is so easily um, used uh, in, in ways that don't necessarily benefit Indigenous people? What What's the process there for protecting that and ensuring that we have data sovereignty? Yeah, incredibly um, complicated. And uh, so the parts that are administered by the state, uh, and um, certainly in the New Zealand context, we have quite a lot of um, ability to manage the governance there. So um, administrative data um, collected by the state, we can um, have Māori governance or advisory boards in place to um, manage the use of that data. There's also a lot of, um, should we say, social and cultural license here. Um, so where the state gets it wrong, there can be a lot of um, very strong pushback, both in the media and um, uh, through especially social media and the population. So um, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that we are making the right steps in the administrative um, space. Where it becomes a little bit more, well, very complicated uh, for us is where the data is held by um, uh, companies, your Facebooks and Googles about um, Māori, or even um, some of the DNA companies. Um, and and lots of I, I don't know how we're going to overcome um, governance issues there. Uh, we've certainly there's there's talk of trying to put um, cultural ice uh, cultural uh, what's the word for it um, like plant variety rights. Um, so you can see where the um, uh, which part of um, Maridum the knowledge uh, the knowledge or the information has come from. Uh, there's sort of um, tags put on data. So it, um, it, it may not protect the um, and provide data governance, but it provides an identifier for where Māori data is being used. Um, and that once that identifier is more widely um, used, that can potentially help us move to a better governance space. But it's incredibly difficult once it gets um, yeah, data that's in the private sector. Certainly, certainly. Um, and, and you mentioned uh, Facebook and, and the whole social media angle as well. And that's uh, on the top of everybody's concerns right now with regard to, to privacy and data collection with regard to technology. So just just a really, really interesting discussion. I want to thank our three guests today, Casey Lozar, Alicia Murphy and Matt Rosscrooge for what's been a really insightful conversation on information and data collection as it pertains to indigenous populations. Join us on Native America Calling again tomorrow as we talk about new music from Native artists. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. 
Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.